0: Underdog Collectibles is a new shop based in Knoxville, Tennessee, but they're available everywhere via their website, udogcollect.com. They're an online shop run by collectors and for collectors, and you can join them as they break every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday night. Join the underdogs at udogcollect.com or on Facebook. Remember, always bet on the underdog. You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. Today we've got a conversation with Nick Deontay and I think you're going to enjoy it. I first met Nick through Twitter actually, just some of the interaction that we had via Twitter We've since had some different podcast interviews, and I actually got to sit in on a screening of the Other Boys of Summer, which is a documentary about the Negro League, and got to see that as a screening and sit in on a panel discussion that happened after that, and and really got a chance to interact and talk about um, that film with the director. and Nick was kind of one of the the hosts of that discussion, and. Had a chance to interact with him a little bit more there which was pretty cool anyway i thought he would be a great person to come onto the show and talk a little bit about his collecting background his writing background and what it's like uh, being a teacher in new york city in the midst of all of the the 19 stuff going on and so without further ado we'll go ahead and run the conversation with nick today we've got nick Diante. And he is better known as at Examine Baseball on Twitter. You may have also seen some of the other videos that he does, the Baseball Happenings podcast. He's a card collector. He's also a content creator. And so I wanted to bring him on the show today just to talk a little bit about what's going on and his involvement in the hobby. So welcome, Nick. Yo, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate being here. How's things going so far out there?
1: You know, we're in New York City, we're kind of in the epicenter of everything and, um, you know, we're slowly starting to recover and, uh, you know, we're doing all this while we're waiting for baseball to come back. So, um, you know, we got an eye on everything that's going on here and uh, hopefully we can get back on the field uh, sooner or later in in many different forms.
0: If I'm not mistaken, you are a teacher as your, your day job. So how did things go to kind of close out the school year?
1: Uh, well, we're still have about another week and a half and, uh, you know, that's been interesting with remote learning and we're trying to manage the challenges in one of the largest school systems in the country. And, you know, so doing, uh, all of that has been challenging and we're still trying to tie up loose ends with students who haven't finished up their work for a variety of reasons to hopefully, you know, get them onto the next grade or to graduate. And, you know, we're going from, you know, there with the school end and it was tough because the seasons got abruptly uh, disrupted all the spring seasons, uh, you know, got shut down after two weeks. So, uh, you know, if you were a baseball player here in the city, you didn't really get to get on the field or you got on the field for a scrimmage or two, and that was about it.
0: When it comes to collecting, I'd love to hear a little bit about your collecting background.
1: Sure. So, I got started in the mid late 80s, like a lot of other people that are, you know, in our age range. And so, um, I think I first remember getting like 87 Donruss 87 tops and you know Beckett was big and it was like collect baseball cards and you know like every other kid that I loved baseball uh, you know that's what I collected and you collected with the season so when the seasons changed you picked up basketball and football and even a little bit of hockey because that was what you were supposed to do so I got into collecting like a lot of other people that you know were in their like late 30s early 40s and uh you know, I stuck with it, and then the autographs came around that time too. And writing to players in the mail, uh, and I had a middle school teacher who would take us up to Cooperstown here from New York City, and we'd go uh, once a year. And then that opened my eyes up. And he was a big autograph collector, and you know, kind of gave me a push on how to, you know, write to guys in the mail and buying Jack Smalling's book. And that really kind of, you know, pushed my passion. i really enjoyed writing to the players, and. I got lucky. I got on with the Negro League players, you know, around 93, 94 and writing to them. And, and that really opened up my eyes uh, to it. And I have had some, you know, very interesting experience over the last, whatever, 25 years writing to players and, you know, ultimately speaking to them and meeting with them in person and things like that over, you know, a letter in the mail.
0: How, how old were you when that first connection started to happen? Were uh, you in, you, was that junior high, high school age?
1: So, yeah, that was about junior high when I, when I started to really kind of write to players. I would say, yeah, you know, like 12, 13, 14. I got lucky. My mom had a hookup at work. So, uh, you know, she was able to get uh, some stuff metered out and postage. <laughs> that made it a lot easier, you know, for me to send stuff in, the, stuff in the mail. So it was fun and a little bit of money I picked up, you know, shoveling snow and, and what have you. You know, I would send three, five dollars to some of the Negro League players. And that really went a long way you know, at the, at the time for those guys who really got nothing off their baseball career financially per se. Um, and so, you know, I get really great letters back and, and signed and it was fun.
0: You said you started going to Cooperstown, you know, in that same time frame, and you being from New York, I know Cooperstown not exactly close to New York city, right? But how many, how many times have you actually been there now?
1: I went there twice, and it was those two years with school, and I just haven't gotten a kick in the behind to make that four-hour ride you know, up to Cooperstown, and it you know was very special, and it was really a cool thing to see. We had kids of all backgrounds get on this trip. We'd save money. Uh, they'd a charter a bus for us to go up there, and again, we're a regular public school, so I guess the school maybe had a little extra money, and I don't know what it was, 10, 20 bucks at the time maybe to go. And it was boys and girls, so it was really fun. We'd go up there, we'd bring some money, you'd buy some some gear, we'd go to the collectible shop, maybe you'd buy a card or some, you know, autographs, and it was just a really fun experience. And you got, you know, mostly dated to see the museum, and what an experience of a group of, you know, really diverse New York City kids being uh, able to go up there and, and see Cooperstown. So those were the two times that that I went, and uh, there's so much memorabilia in the museum and in the town, and that opened opened my eyes. I was like, oh, there's so much stuff to collect.
0: Yeah. It's a place that I had always wanted to go growing up, but growing up in central Illinois, it's a real hike to upstate New York, um, to go check it out. Um, but I spent about two to two and a half years on a, an assignment up in Toronto. And while I was there, I said, I'm going to make it now. I'm going to, I'm going to take that trip now. Um, I'm as close as I'm probably ever going to be. So I, I spent a weekend and, uh, went down to Cooperstown while I was up you know living in Toronto and and made the trip. and it was it was it was neat. I'm glad I got a chance to see it. you know, had a whole day at the museum, got a, to go to some of the microbrews. Um, I went right after Ron Santo um, had had made it in. and so as a Cubs fan, that was cool to be able to see um, his stuff there, picked up a couple Ron Santo cards at one at the local card shops and that type of thing. and so yeah, it was a it was a pretty neat experience.
1: You know, you mentioned the cards, those Hall of Fame postcards. That's what I started getting signed. Right. And so that also opened up a bit of it, too. You'd go up there and you would buy a bunch. And at the time, you still could mail them out to guys and get them for for free, you know, in in the mail. And that was exciting to see these come back. Buck Leonard, Bob Lemon, Phil Rizzuto. um, You know, uh, there's other guys that are escaping me right now, um, you know, that that were generous, you know, with their time. Bobby Doerr, right? They were generous with their time in the mail. And that was fine. And that drove the collecting, the autograph collecting part of it.
0: What do you collect now?
1: You know, I've really spent the last two to three years trying to better focus my collection in terms of narrow, downsize, um, maybe reallocate some of that money for other things. Um, I've been very fortunate to be a reviewer for Tops for the last five years. So a lot of my new collection is based on what they send me to review. And so I get to see the gamut of all their products and I keep the cool stuff. You know what I mean? Other stuff yep. I give to my students and things like that, or maybe I'll trade. Um, and so that's been fun. Uh, I still mainly kind of collect Negro League autographs. I still, if I get a decent Hall of Fame autograph or if I could pick up some of those postcards, because now the price has dropped on those things, I'll try to add them to my collection as too. Um, but I'm then very calculated with what I'm picking up because there's a lot of it already
0: coming in. So one of the things that I like to to kind of talk about is that combination of both the hobby and the business sides of collecting. And I know you dabble some in the buying and selling and some flipping mm-hmm. and things like that. Is that something that you had done all along the way? Is that just kind of a, a kind of a small piece of what you do? Is that something that you enjoy or is, there a, is that you know, just something my you're dabbling eye, my in? My eyes
1: my eyes got opened up. It was some, I've always had my hand in and I'll try to give like quick background, right? Uh, probably 99, 2000, whenever I got on eBay, I remember putting up like a Michael Jordan Drake's basketball card, right? You could buy like Drake's cakes and they had the cards in there. And then all of a sudden, like the last day it went from like five bucks to like 20. And I was like, oh wow, you can make some money off of this. And so like throughout college, I would use eBay to like unload records that I got. I did radio for quite a some time. There was stuff I didn't like. Like that was those were the Wild West days of eBay. People send you money orders and, you know, write handwritten letters and you'd do a lot of exchanging in the mail. And so I always have that as an outlet to keep money coming in when I was in college, you know, of little things here or there. Occasional collectible off you know, But it was honestly mostly like my records and CDs and music. And I was getting hit with gear I just couldn't use. And it was always a really good outlet for it that way. So I always had my hand in eBay. Uh, Then I'd say when I came back to baseball cards, like I touched baseball cards a little bit, maybe circa like 2008. And I would just kind of observe and see. And uh, there was always like an event that would happen that would cause me to sell a baseball card, right? And I learned to like sell on the event. So like when Jeter got his 3,000 hit, you know, my SP rookie went. And I probably, right, I undersold now looking at it, but I knew I was like, all right, there's hype, time to sell. So that's, that's what I kind of looked at eBay for, for my sports cards at that time. now I have a different look at it because I can go to garage sales and identify what the good picks are, right? Sure. And, and be able to turn them around.
0: So I first found out about you through your content. You know, and mm-hmm. so the, the content creation sort of thing is also something that I'm very interested in because it's not always easy to find that balance between spending time on your collecting as well as spending time on the content creation side of things. And so I'm curious on where did that originate? Where, When and how did you start producing card and baseball related content?
1: You know, I, I started to get into back into doing interviews while I was working at Temple University. I was teaching full time in uh, Philadelphia and I was an adjunct at Temple and I just started to interview ballplayers a little more on the Negro League side. But I was calling a lot of like ballplayers that played in the 40s and 50s that played as integration crossed to get their story about like, what was it like to play with these Negro League players in the minor leagues, in winter ball, and to get their stories? Because I knew they were going to take their stories with them and not all of them told it. Right, and so when I moved back to New York, I realized okay, I'm there's a lot of access here, so I started my own website, uh, and I did the best with the writing I could. Looking back now, my writing's like cringeworthy, you know, from Mm. 2008 or so. Right, I've really made strides as a writer, and um, you know, it would get me access to events. So I'd have to write up events, and there was a lot going on in New York City. You had the bat dinner, the alumni dinner. There's a lot of like charity dinners that would originate in New York City, but that also gave me access to the players. And it just went from there. So if I wasn't doing interviews in person, I would call people on the phone, record the interviews. And I would use some of that for my site. I'm still kind of working on a book, which is hard, but balancing all of that is tough, right? We have our nine to five responsibilities. If I coach, I'm not coming home to seven, eight o'clock at night, it ebbs and flows. Some weeks I'll put out two, three articles and then I might go two weeks without writing something. It is very challenging to keep up the content, especially if you watch like guys like Gary Vee and he's like, content, 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 content. If it's not your, your, your a job, it is really difficult to stay on top of the content needed to go in people's faces enough that where you're in your ear. And I've really tried to go for more of a quality over quantity approach because that's what I have available.
0: How did your connection to Forbes happen? Sure. So, um,
1: I want to spend a special shout out to Howard Medgall. Um, who is a very prominent WNBA writer. And Howard, I got me in touch with uh, his editor at Forbes. What happened was one of the sites I was writing for, the sports post closed down. I think this was a little over a year ago. And I was set to cover the AVP. That's the uh, Pro Beach Volleyball Tour here. And I'm really good with the media people there. And they're like, Nick, we love you, but you need an outlet. And I was stuck. And I saw Forbes really had no volleyball coverage. And so he got me in touch with the editor. I showed him my past work. Um, And, you know, some of the work that I've had published in, like, major papers, things like that. And they're like, oh, look, we like what you do. Let's see how it rolls. And so they've given me leeway to write about baseball, baseball culture, which involves the collecting, uh, and professional volleyball. So that's how I got in with Forbes. And that was last – it was a year ago.
0: So what do you – do you teach English? Is that the –
1: I'm a physical education teacher. So uh, English is not my uh, foray. And I've really had to do a lot of learning online. And there are some tremendous resources, uh, you know, just for basic grammar tips. And uh, I've learned to use some editors. uh, And I've had friends that have helped along the way with editing to get me to spot things. And I think every year I'm I'm making progress, you know, as a writer. But that has been challenging. And that's why I go back and say, my articles from like two thousand eight, two thousand nine were definitely like not at the level they are now.
0: Is is your content, um, your quote unquote content life, is that something your students are aware of? Or are you, do you use your content as a lesson or as an inspiration, or do you attempt to use those things as an inspiration for your students? Excellent question. So
1: I'll try to give it to you on a few fronts. Um, I'm fortunate enough where our school offers elective courses and every year, every other year, I usually rotate between teaching a required health class or an elective course. And so right now I'm teaching an elective sports journalism course. So I take the little stuff I know. We have a blog for our school's website and I try to ease them into sports writing. You know, we do it in small groups and they get into individual stuff and that's been fun. And some kids really have taken to it and they've become little reporters in the school and maybe they'll write articles on the team. So that's how I've connected that. I've had some kids step to me like this year I had a kid was like, I read your article on Forbes. It was pretty good. And so I thought that was cool that like, he came up to me and, and said that and um, you know uh, you know, other students are like, coach, let me know when the book comes. Like, so that has been exciting to be able to share that with them. A few years ago, I wrote a story and a picture by the name of Mark Brownson I think he died in his early 40s, drug overdose. I was able to get in contact with his ex-wife. And she gave me the only interview, and it was a really inter interview, and it went into his struggles with drugs and their marriage. And I sent it around to my students some of my parents. And uh, they were like, Wow, that was a really powerful piece. And I, you know, it was just more of like, Look, kids are experimenting with a lot of drugs. I don't want to say at my school, I mean just in general, right? With vaping and things like that going on and, you know, casual drug use of, of of prescribed medicines and I thought it was important to see how he got hooked on opiates which eventually led to his you know his death and it started from him taking painkillers as a major league baseball player and then he wound up with a heroin addiction and you know I don't want kids to fall in that trap because it's something that they do recreationally so I thought like here's a great example of someone who's a pro athlete who derailed you know, his life, marriage, and career. And I got some really good feedback from, you know, my colleagues and uh, students and parents over that.
0: Yeah, it's awesome when you can have a piece like that, make an impact or make a connection with those students to help teach them a life lesson. I think it's also cool that they can see maybe another possibility on something they can do that is sports related that can also add value to, to others, you know, and so even for them to do that, I know, you know, some of the, the writing that I did before, prior to even starting Wax Pack Hero was doing some fantasy sports writing and being paid on a per article basis to do some fantasy sports writing. And one of my sister-in-law is a teacher and she would tell some of her students, hey, you like sports? Writing matters because here's something that you can do. My brother-in-law gets paid you know, on the, as a side deal to be able to write about sports and write about these things that he likes. And so it's neat that you can show people and you can show these other students other possibilities than maybe the stereotypical thing that they think about when they think about English or writing. I, I try to put that
1: in their heads. Um, because even if they don't, uh, do some freelance sports writing, the skill transfers over to press releases. It, Transfers over to, you know, cover letter writing. Uh, it transfers over to, you know, doing maybe some PR work. You don't know what position life is going to put you in, and you need to be able to call on these skills. And uh, for some of the kids, they might see it as an outlet. Like, hey, maybe I could do this full of part time. It's really tough in the media industry right now, but you know, I want to give kids that that option. Of, like, as you said, there is a skill that they can use, and if they can use it about their passion, great. Because like for me, it's also like a side gig. And I don't mean that in, with any sort of disrespect to all of my colleagues that do this full time. But you know, I, I, my teaching is my first gig, but it, it's rewarding when you can get paid for it because it's an acknowledgement that your, your time is being valued because in the beginning I wasn't getting paid for this. Right. So right. Um, that is, and that's something that many of these creators talk about. Like, you know, you can't just start asking for money off the bat. Like, local magazine took notice they hired me we i was on with them for a few years until they went under that was really fun and then everything snowballed you know local newspaper then it was regional newspaper then a national newspaper then Forbes. so all this stuff snowballs and it's because every experience built on the previous one
0: one of the other things i always like to ask people who work with kids is especially sports related work with kids Mm do very many of the kids that you work with teaching or coaching, do they collect at all?
1: I've rarely encountered kids. I've encountered, so I had a student a few years ago that collected some autograph stuff. he would go to some of the Steiner events and one other kid was like an autograph hound, but he was doing that strictly for, you know, cash. Okay. Um, uh, man, I feel like sometimes I'll bring stuff to school, like extra cards. I'm like, who wants these? Or like, who collects? Like one kid on one of my teams, I gave him some Yankee stuff. He was like really happy with it. But, no one stepped to me like, "Yo, I still collect cards." Which, look, I even remember mid-high school, I dropped it because I was busier playing baseball than trying to collect cards, right? So, um, I think for a lot of people, they they put it away because other things become, you know, more important. But I have really not seen kids collect that stuff. They're more, maybe, more into like the gear, okay, the jerseys. The kids will have like an array of jerseys, and I think that's how they're collecting. I really have not kids come up to be like, "Yo, I heard you write about baseball cards. I still collect. I know and and that's that's discouraging to me because uh it, you know it it it's tough because we want younger kids to get into it if the hobby is going to continue to persist.
0: yeah, it's one of those things that i I hear and I see both sides of it. you know at the national last summer, there were more kids there than I thought there would be when I was there. We've got a local show. Um, here in, in central Illinois, that's a monthly show. And there's probably, it's a smaller show, but there's probably five or six uh, quote unquote families that, that mm-hmm. come in either the, the mom and the kid or the father and the daughter um, come in regularly. And so there's a, a good mix that we've got here locally too, but it, it's still, yeah, like it, of all the kids in in my neighborhood, all of my um all of my children's friends. There's one, I think that collects maybe some star Wars cards and is more into that non sports type of stuff. So I've seen more of that.
1: Like we have a gaming club at school. That's popular. And like, you know, we have maybe whatever, 10 kids that are really into like the non sports cards.
0: But yeah, it's nowhere near where it was like when I was growing up in the, in the neighborhood like mine where we've got, we've got elementary and junior high age kids all around the neighborhood there is probably at least half or more collected when I was a kid. And that's only a handful maybe now.
1: Definitely true. But you know, where do they go? Right. So here in Queens, we have one dedicated hobby shop, they've been managed to outlast the rest. And I go there from time to time, pick up a few cards for maybe autographing or some supplies. And um, I see kids come in, but it's still like a lot of like older, uh, you know, like older guys coming in, dropping money to buy boxes. The younger kids are coming in to buy the non-sports cards there. And, but that's the only place to congregate. Like I definitely clearly remember like the baseball card store was a destination or a place where my mom could leave me while she goes shopping. I could sit there, you know what I mean? And look through the cards or annoy the store owner and wind up spending $2 in an hour. Right. But that was a place to go. And so just like because I was in music and record shops have kind of went the same way. When you lose that community space, you're going to lose buy, casual buyers because people come in and browse. like, all right, I'll take a pack. You know, and you don't get that same experience going to, to Target or Walmart and shoot. Right now you go to Target or Walmart. There is no cards because people are going in there and cleaning shelves for, you know, profit reasons. And I understand it. Do I wholeheartedly agree with it? I'm like, you could leave a few boxes behind. You know? Right. But it's not the same experience. Right.
0: Well, tell me, are there any current projects that you've got going on that or that will be coming out soon that you want to make sure people are aware of?
1: You know, if folks go to the website, baseballhappenings.net, the best thing that people can do is subscribe. I try to send out a newsletter bi-monthly just to let people know what is going on. You know, I'll probably have a link to a new Forbes article, a new podcast, even if there's something up on my YouTube channel. And I think that's the best way that people go. I don't have anything in the in the in the can right now in terms of like, gosh, I'm really holding back on that. Um, there'll be some pieces coming the rest of the month for Forbes, um, and you know, I'm trying to probably like continue to add to the podcast as I, you know, I have a few author interviews lined up, so. You know, that is uh, forthcoming, but I don't have a major project per se that's, uh, you know, that that's coming up. I would just say if people are interested in following, go to the website, subscribe to the newsletter. um, Give me a follow on social media. I'm at Examine Baseball basically everywhere. uh, Save for Facebook. um, And, you know, you can keep up with what's going on. And I would say that's the best way because, uh, you know, it's not like I got a book coming out like that right now.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for hanging out for a little bit and talking cards and talking content creation. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure for me to be able to get to talk with people from a variety of backgrounds all across the country. And so I'm, I really appreciate you taking some time to to chat.
1: Well, Mike, you know, I really appreciate what you do and the insight that you give, uh, uh, you know, your presence, uh, you know, on Twitter, which is how we met, but you know, how you've expanded. And, um, you know, it's really great to connect with people that are enthusiastic about the hobby that are, you know, of a certain age, and that are, you know, willing to talk about it in like a very reasonable way. So, um, you know, I'm a fan. And, you know, thanks again for giving me this opportunity to be on.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Nick for coming on. I appreciate having the conversation with him. I would encourage you to follow him at examine baseball on Twitter. Check out his blog and website at baseballhappenings.net. You can follow me on Twitter at the Mike Summer, and you can reach out to me at waxpackhero at gmail.com if you'd like to give me some feedback on this interview or any of the podcasts or even the blog and website at waxpackhero.com. I'd love to hear from you. It's how I grow, it's how I improve, it's how I get better, and I really appreciate the interaction and the feedback from you guys. Also, I want to encourage you to check out the Hobby Hotline, the live weekly call-in show that we do both on Saturday mornings and Monday evenings. It's your chance to call in and talk with us hobby uh, podcasters. There's several of us that get together and do the show, and we appreciate and love to hear from you guys, the listeners. Well, that's all I've got for you today. I will catch you next time.